You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time for David's Pick. And we'll get right into David's Pick and a great guest that we've got on today lined up. Uh, Right after we do our thing that we started a couple of months ago in memory of a... My close friend, J. Roy Ritchie, who died of Agent Orange from his exposure in um, Vietnam. And uh, after that, we'll follow that by our other little thing that we do, and that's a cadence call, making sure everybody's ready for that five-mile run and double time this morning. So with that being said, let's take a moment and uh, have a moment of silence, and we'll be right back with our guest after a moment of silence. Amen. Okay, let's get into a cadence call. Okay, and everybody should have gotten their two-mile run in quickly enough and uh, up and ready to go for David's pick. And our guest today, and I am delighted to have him on because I'm going to find out, you know, this this is the nice thing about doing this show and having all the different veterans on. You know, we've, we've had the uh, refuelers on, uh, Jeff Hill. We've had a number of different folks on that uh, I always learn something and this is a branch uh, veteran of the U.S. Coast Guard and unfortunately over the years I feel like the Coast Guard has been sort of cheated so we're going to find out all about it today and um, we have Art Katz on and uh, Art welcome to America's Web Radio. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, we're going to find out all about the Coast Guard from you. And, you know, there are a lot of folks, not just a few, but a lot of folks that didn't realize the importance of the Coast Guard and the role you all played in Vietnam. And, you know, for some reason, why do you think the Coast Guard is just sort of overlooked? I I would guess, number one, because it's a very small service, and number two, in uh, peacetime, its role is quite different from what it is in wartime. But the Coast Guard has been uh, an integral part of every foreign armed conflict since World War I uh, that the United States has been involved in. You know, I would would venture to say, if you were to do a, a... man on the street thing and you said what does the coast guard do or what is their role that the answer would 
99% of the time be, well, they guard our coast. And they don't realize that uh, you all go to foreign countries and represent the United States in foreign countries. Would you, would you well, say we that certainly was? do that, uh, both in peacetime and in wartime, because the uh, peacetime expertise that the Coast Guard has in uh, areas of maritime safety, um, aids to navigation, uh, merchant marine vessel inspection, uh, etc., that never stops. Uh, that's 24-7, round-the-clock, peacetime, wartime, etc. Uh, but uh, the role, that role continues, and in wartime, um, several additional aspects form, and in fact, uh, the Coast Guard uh, becomes part of the uh, Navy Department in times of war. Okay, I, I didn't realize that there was a switchover or, or a dual uh, role there. Now, <laughs> uh, I do weird things uh, when I'm sleeping or, or trying to sleep, and so I had the question last night came to me during... Uh, while I was in bed and trying to sleep, and how did uh, how did you all get to Vietnam? Did you go over in a flotilla of some sort and and uh, take your boats over that way or your ships over that way? And wasn't a lot of your activity river activity in Nam? Uh, good questions, and I'll I'll try to give you the the Cliff Notes version. Um, <clears throat> when the Coast Guard was. Uh, authorized by President Johnson in April of 1965 to um, form under the Navy and uh, take part in something called Operation Market Time, which was a um, blockade, if you will, of the entire South Vietnamese coast. Um, Twenty-five Coast Guard cutters that were 82 feet long, um, and in peacetime, of course, were very lightly armed and did not have any wartime communications. They were put on freighters. The freighters sailed them to the Navy base at uh, Subic Bay in the Philippines. In the Philippines, we put a great deal of additional armament on. We put naval or military communications equipment on, etc. And then we sailed our boats the 1,200-plus miles from the Philippines to Vietnam. Interesting. Um, so, uh, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, well. Uh, David, I'm, you're I'm, cutting out a lot. Okay, well, um, let's see. Uh, how am I doing now with you? That's better. Okay. Um, anyway, so, what, what you say 82 footers, is that? That's correct. And what kind of armament would they generally have? I was actually uh, pretty substantial. We had five 50 caliber machine guns, and that was two on the stern, two midships, and one on the uh, bow. And the one on the bow also had, uh, for the first time used in warfare, uh, a gimbal-mounted 81-millimeter mortar, which was trigger-fired. So if you think of mortars in... uh, Army or land combat, they're typically like a stovepipe. You drop the projectile in. When the projectile hits the firing pin at the bottom of the tube, it fires and off it goes. We we actually fired them with uh, a, a trigger, and you needed that because uh, rather than having solid ground as a platform for firing, when you wanted to be accurate, <clears throat> you have to consider the boat 
depending on uh, the wave action, is moving in three dimensions. Well, wow, yeah. Uh, you know, th- this is what I find fascinating. And uh, what about uh, any other, besides the mortar, any other rocket-type uh, armament? Well, we had, uh, <clears throat> I guess, most small arms, predominantly uh, AR-15s, um, certainly handguns in the form of uh, uh, forty-five calibers, <laughs> um, and occasionally what you could beg, borrow, or steal from somebody, so... Uh, Perhaps a couple of uh, shoulder-mounted uh, rockets. Um, the and that law? Sort of thing. <laughs> Did you have the law? Is that? I don't know if you know what the law is, but I was in the army, so uh, that was the uh, the rocket that we had in the army as a ground pounder. Um, well, I, we were not issued any, so uh, some of the boats may have had a few of them, but uh, really. The armament, as I described it, was pretty much what we had, but if you can bring two or three 50-caliber machine guns to bear on a target um, <clears throat> over the water so there's <clears throat> there are no trees, etc., in the way, uh, it, it's pretty effective. I would, I would say that was can be quite effective, as a matter of fact. Uh, let me ask, and this is something that I thought that I applaud Trump for all the time, uh, had you, had you, and the Coast Guard—not you personally—but had you heard anything through the Coast Guard about the Blue Water Bill? And was the Coast Guard, like the Inland Navy, was affected by Agent Orange? Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with the, the Blue Water Bill, which essentially um, said uh, or provided veterans benefits to uh, members of the United States Navy that served predominantly in the outer ring blockade of what was called Operation Market Time, uh, with the Coast Guard being the inner ring blockade. But essentially what it said was, or what it says is that um, even though you might have been 20 or 30 miles out to sea, the the likelihood is that um, you were impacted by Agent Orange. So for the blue water sailors, blue water being deep water, um, for the blue water sailors, that was very important. For the Coast Guard, we, I, I operated in uh, an Agent Orange area, and almost all of the Coast Guard boats did, so we were covered before the uh, Blue Water Navy bill was uh, added uh, for veterans' benefits purposes. Well, good. I, I wasn't aware of that, and it's like I said going into the show, I'm going to find out a bunch of information today in talking to you, Art, and uh, I appreciate this opportunity to do that. Um, so what was your duty in, and, well, look, just give us a little bit of your background, please. Uh, okay, at what age would you like me to start, in all seriousness? Uh, well, I guess uh, I do know that you went to the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, New York City and as a teenager on Long Island. Um, my dad owned a hunting and fishing tackle store when I was a little kid, and we lived right behind the store that was in Jamaica, uh, Long Island. And then uh, I went to high school in Levittown and worked on a fishing boat. So wow. I had a love for the water from uh, an early age. Um, I was We had a, a Coast Guard Academy recruiter came through my high school when I was a junior, and I said, yes, that's for me. Went through the academy and graduated in 1963 with 91 classmates. Um, Very briefly after that, uh, you have a choice of 
different kinds of assignments within the Coast Guard. I chose the aids to navigation route, which meant that uh, I started out as an operations officer on a aids to navigation vessel, aids to navigation being those buoys that you see floating in the water that keep ships from going aground or crashing into one another, and also various lights that are on islands or shoals or even lighthouses. The Coast Guard is responsible for all of that. So I was on one of those as an operations officer right out of the academy, which is a fair amount of responsibility. Um, and after that was in Virginia, and after that uh, I was promoted to an executive officer of one based in Staten Island, New York, right on New York Harbor, and did that until I was um, plucked, if you will, uh, on very short notice to go to Vietnam as commanding officer of one of the 82-foot gunboats. Mine was the uh, Coast Guard Cutter Point Cypress. Wow. What a career. And uh, I, uh, what did you think of Vietnam when you got there? The, I, I will start out by saying um, the Vietnam War, I was, if you will, a patriot, idealistic, and uh, I, I went because my country needed me and I could serve a useful purpose. I think we did an admirable job of our mission, and our main mission was, uh, and let me just back up for a second and say that uh, in, I'll tell you how the Coast Guard got there. In 1965, um, there was something called the Vung Ro Bay Incident. February 1965, an Army helicopter on the coast of South Vietnam in a very routine flight noticed uh, what looked like a piece of the jungle moving across the bay. <laughs> and they went back to investigate, and it turned out to be a uh, North Vietnamese trawler about 120 feet long um, carrying arms and ammunition to the Viet Cong. They called in uh, air support, uh, blew it up basically, um, but the vessel had already been unloading arms and ammunitions on the beach, and uh, those were captured as well. And that said, what the Navy had thought all along, which was that the Viet Cong were being supplied primarily by uh, water from North Vietnam on these 100 to 120 foot trailers, trawlers, with disguised trawlers, which could carry up to 100 tons of uh, ammunition and firearms. Wow. Um, Post-Vietnam War, it was determined that uh, prior to 1966, maybe 75% of all the military uh, material that was supplied to the Viet Cong from North Vietnam came by way of the sea. Uh, and the northern part of Vietnam is very mount of, of South Vietnam is mountainous, but when you get to the southern half, that's much flatter and involves the Mekong Delta. So there's a whole network of canals for, if you will, those are the highways for getting things through the infrastructure. Uh, as I was saying, um, 1965, early 66, maybe 75 percent of the supplies were from North Vietnam. By the middle part of 1967, that had been reduced to about 10%. And uh, what the North Vietnamese then had to do was resort almost exclusively to the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And just to give you a sense, um, 
it would take about 4,000 people two months to carry the same amount of arms and ammunition that one uh, North Vietnamese trawler could carry in a week by sea to the Viet Cong. You know, you, this sounds crazy, I guess, but um, you've got to give the Vietnamese credit, the North Vietnamese credit. They were very creative in a lot of the things that they did, both in, uh, you know, they were... Certainly, uh, very, very much so. Um, of course, it was their homeland, and if one knows the history of uh, Vietnam, basically they've been fighting foreign powers, if you will, for almost a thousand years uh, in one form or another, starting with uh, China back around uh, the year 1000 and moving forward from there. Art, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Art Katz right after these messages. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. Art, how are we doing? Uh, when you just said how are we doing, that sounded, that was the best it would be. To, we're doing fine. Um, just hearing you on occasion, you're really fading out. Well, I, I've got my board tweaked, uh, so I, I can't answer. I, all I can do is tell my end of the story, you know, but we'll make it. No problem. Oh, yeah, just, just fine. If I, if I can't hear clearly, I'll just say, would you repeat that? Sure. And I'll be back to you in just a little. And understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please go to our website, warriorstocitizens.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, and the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised to right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. And I would like to go on with uh, some activities that are going on this weekend, this Saturday, uh, July the 17th at 10 a.m. in Newtown Park, which is in Johns Creek. The Veterans Memorial Walk is where you'll need to go, and the new F. Afghanistan Monument will be dedicated in honor of all those that have served in that country since 9-11, many of which have paid the ultimate sacrifice. This will be a very solemn ceremony and is open to the public, so we invite and encourage everybody to uh, come on over to Johns Creek and go to Newtown Park and... uh, you know, everything that Mike Mozell and uh, Rick White do for veterans is just amazing, and I can guarantee that you will appreciate the dedication. And the main speaker will be Graham White, Colonel Graham White, who's still on active duty, but he'll be uh, giving the dedication speech. So everyone's invited to come out at 10 o'clock. You might need to get there a little early to get a parking place, but 10 o'clock on Saturday morning for the dedication of 
the Afghanistan Memorial, which I'm glad to see that their monument, Afghanistan Monument, which uh, I'm glad to see people are remembering, and we help them too. We do a show called Remembering Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So come on out. And you're listening to America's Web Radio, and our guest today is Art Katz. And uh, we're finding out, I'm finding out, all sorts of information about the U.S. Coast Guard. So let's get back to Art and welcome him back on the air. And, um, you know, Art, I, I told you that I wouldn't ask you any hardball questions, but I always do wind up asking our guests one hardball question, and so I figured this is as good a time as any, if you're ready. The uh, Coast Guard motto is uh, Semper Paratus, always ready. Always, always ready. And, okay, well, if you're always ready, here's the hardball question. As a veteran, and I'm sure you've got a lot of veteran friends, can you name one veteran that can tell one story? Only no. one story. I, I cannot name one veteran that can tell one story because they can all tell more than one. <laughs> That's right. Once you wind them up, it's hard to stop them, isn't it? <laughs> For sure. No, I, and this is this is something that we want to we emphasize and try to emphasize is the fact that veterans today they play a very important role because they are our history books. Many times our history books and the information that's being taught in school is either left out or not not uh, told exactly right. And so the veteran should take it upon themselves to get their child or their grandchildren or whatever the case might be up on their knees and tell them. They don't have to go into any gory details. Just tell them what they did in the service and why they served their country. And uh, just like you said a minute ago, because you cared. That's why you went to into the academy and then uh, to Vietnam, because you cared. And your kids, I'm sure you've told, and, you know, any other kid that will listen, you should tell, because you are our history books. And um, we also suggest, and since we have a uh, former U.S. Coast Guard Academy graduate, on today, um, you can pl- put a plug in for the academy, and we encourage any person that's graduating from high school or has just graduated from college and gotten their degree and they haven't decided quite what they want to do, I, I put out a guarantee every week that one branch of the military services, I don't know which one it is, but one of them, just like in your case, Art, had your interest and will provide you the greatest life ever and you'll make friends that you'll have for from now on and speaking of that do you keep in contact with your crew uh unfortunately most of my crew is deceased uh, i'm sorry so there are only uh, there are only two or three left and uh i do keep in contact with them uh i also uh Statistically, things are much better with my Coast Guard Academy classmates. We graduated 92, uh, of which uh, 72 of us are still kicking, and um, 
as our class president recently noted, 69 are uh, kicking pretty well. So um, once a month uh, I get on a uh, Zoom conversation with uh, several classmates, and it is uh, a nice way to keep in touch on top of that uh, through our alumni association. Um, we're aware of what's going on within the class. You know, like I said, there's um, there no better friends can can be made than in the military. And at the same token, you're part. You're you're not just retired from the Coast Guard. You're retired from the U.S. military. And once once you've done that, you have something in common with everybody that served from top to bottom, and that is that you raised your hand and swore to defend and would give your life to defend a country and a flag that and the constitution that we all love and uh that's something and i i get very upset at this statistic that only one percent of the country ever serves and um i uh that's deplorable everybody should serve in some capacity, but anyway, you want to give a plug for the Coast Guard? Now, me, I graduated from a from Texas Tech University, which was better known as an ag school, and um, we and that was my major, as a matter of fact. But uh, you know, did you uh, do you feel like you benefited from graduating from the academy and learn more about water? I, I would encourage. Um anyone to apply. Uh, interestingly enough, the Coast Guard Academy is the only one of the military academies that does not require a congressional appointment. It's uh, strictly competitive. Uh, and it's very much uh, the academy, of course, when I went through, was all male. Uh, now it is fully uh, integrated male, female, uh, all ethnic backgrounds, etc., um, and is a wonderful education. Uh, in my day, which is 55-plus years ago, uh, you only had a one-set curricula. Um, now that has changed tremendously, and there are multiple majors that you can take. Uh, the academy is very active uh, in intercollegiate sports. In fact, uh, um, we have uh, a um, duo of recent graduates that will be uh, on a sailing representing the United States uh, in the Tokyo Olympics. Um, That's fantastic. It, it's a, a tremendously uh, positive experience and a wonderful education. And uh, like you, I would encourage anyone to check it out. Uh, it, it's also, if you want to look at it in terms of the financial side of it, it is a totally free education. Uh, if you will, the, the cost is that you have to give back, but to give back... Uh, is very much um, part of life's experience and will serve you well whether you stay in the military or you choose to get out. And the academy is located? Is located uh, in New London, Connecticut, on the Thames River, and that is, if you will, almost across the river from the a Navy base at uh, Groton, Connecticut, and not far from the electric boat facility where they build atomic submarines. Uh, and it's a, a quick ride out to uh, Long Island Sound. Uh, unique to the Coast Guard Academy is the Training Bark Eagle, which is a three-masted, 300-foot-long uh, sailing ship uh, that all 
and graduates are on as part of um, their seamanship training. Uh, and in fact, uh, I sailed to Europe on it twice. Well, uh, let me ask. Uh, okay, we we had. Um, you were talking about where they they build the subs. We've had a gentleman on um, that has the submarine museum uh, located uh, in St. Mary's, and it's fascinating to talk to him. He was a submariner, and uh, also uh, you know talks about the. Uh, we we talk a little bit about everything from the diesels on up and down the gambit. I uh, I can say this word submarine and become claustrophobic, but uh, there are. Were were you ever involved in submarining at all? No, n- not at all. I mean, I I have toured submarines, but other than that, um, no involvement whatsoever. Yeah, I just uh, not for me, not for me at all. Uh, they go a little little too deep and i want to be sure i can see the sun tomorrow you know but well just as a side note um you're probably aware your listeners are probably aware they have something called a monsoon over in southeast asia and that is basically uh about a three-month period of wind rain gray skies um not very uh, accommodating, if you will, and particularly so on an 82-foot boat oh. um, in 10, 12-foot seas. So uh, that I bet wasn't you can... claustrophobic in one sense, but was in another because uh, we couldn't go anywhere but stay on patrol, and we had to do so in some really uh, unpleasant weather where you're constantly rolling around and being bounced around. Well, now let me ask you, doesn't the uh, Coast Guard, and I, I'm not a mariner, so I don't know a whole lot about what I'm talking about, but doesn't the Coast Guard have one ship that if it capsizes, it literally will roll on over and ride itself? Uh, yes, that that um, is a, a 44-foot, uh, what they call a motor surfboat. Um, <coughs> the term that is used is self-writing. Right means it's the right way, which is right side up. Uh, self-writing just means that it's designed so that if it capsizes, um, it immediately, um, because of where the buoyancy level is, it will immediately pop back around to the way it's supposed to be. And in fact, um, those are used primarily in uh, the heavy surf areas uh, around the United States. Uh, and typically, when they were used, um, the, if the seas were rough enough, you you literally were were tied to the boat so that if it capsized and then righted itself, you capsized and righted yourself as well, as opposed <laughs> to getting washed away. Is that is that does that work off of some kind of gyro mechanism? Uh, it's without getting into uh, naval architecture. It it's where the buoyancy or the center of buoyancy is so that um, it's you know the way it's constructed as opposed to any kind of electronics because you wouldn't want to depend on electronics when you're underwater uh, in most cases (laughs) that's true that's very true but uh, very interesting what let me ask uh, your tour in Nam David I didn't hear you let me ask your tour in uh, Nam 
What would you say was one of the most interesting things that happened to you? Um, yes, I think I could say that without question that was one of the most interesting things. One of the things that I never expected to be doing in my life and uh, certainly very rewarding in the sense that uh, we did the job we were supposed to do. We uncovered and uh, fought the enemy in places that the enemy might not have expected us to be. Um, and my, if you will, my, my greatest uh, accomplishment is that I had a crew of 12 and had nobody killed or wounded, even though we were involved in uh, multiple firefights. Well, now, I, I do have to ask, um, when the Coast Guard went to Nam, and I, you know, I only know what I know from uh, my great experience on television or watching, but the Coast Guard, most of the Coast Guard boats, ships, whatever, are painted white. Did you all go and have white boats that sort of would have stuck out uh, on the on the uh, rivers as you were patrolling, or did you all paint that them a different is, color? That uh, is an excellent observation, and the very first Coast Guard boats that went to Vietnam uh, were, in fact, white because there essentially wasn't time to paint them, and nobody really thought about that, but very quickly realized once they got there that that was not uh, the best thing in the world and they were then immediately painted uh, Navy battleship gray. So my boat uh, was gray the entire time we were in Vietnam. Well, so at least I score one, right? Say that again? At least I score one. Absolutely. That's a good question. Yeah, no, you're I, correct. That would, I would think that uh, the white would would stand out and be a very good target, uh, and that would be uh, unfortunate. Yeah, but I've had, through the years, I've had many people say to me, wow, that's pretty neat. And my response to them was, well, if you're on an 82-foot boat uh, in one of the rivers of the Mekong Delta, and you're the good guy, and the bad guys are all on the banks hiding behind the trees and bushes and things, uh, if you've ever seen the pictures in the amusement parks where um, you shoot at the little ducky that's floating back and forth, well, that's kind of what we were. So um, <laughs> There's no place to hide if you're out on the water, but there's lots of places to hide if you're on the bank or, or in the jungle. You know, that's sort of like when um, we went into Desert Storm and Desert Shield, or Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and, um, you know, we'd been preparing in Europe for war or a possibility of war in Europe. And so everything we had from tanks to APCs up and down the gambit was OD green. Well, so we go to Desert Shield with OD green tanks on sort of a light-colored sandy <laughs> surface. They stuck out like a white boat in, uh, in the Delta, I'm sure. Yeah, that does not sound like a, a very good thing. No, they. Uh, in fact, uh, I was at Fort Stewart when they had shipped. They ship everything into Iraq and get ready for the for Desert Shield and Desert Storm and and send everything over there. And then they had to send it all back to be repainted at Fort Stewart. And uh, they they hustled to uh, go from OD green to uh, desert colored. 
So it's, you know, you wonder sometimes if we outsmart ourselves or we forget a detail, you know. But uh, that's that's part of life. That's part of being human. And uh, so when you were there, uh, you were there in 65, did you say? Uh, I actually was in country in um, almost all of 1966. Um, I, I spent the the fall of uh, 1965. Got, I got my orders, and then it was uh, get a crew together. And you had a, a dozen people that had never met one another before, and we trained on the West Coast in uh, damage control, Navy communications, uh, gunfire, uh, etc., and even went through a t- because of the rush to get us there, uh, our initial survival training was uh, in December of 1965 at the Marine Corps Mountain Warfare Training Center, which was the only one open over Christmas time, and that was located 12,000 feet up in the Sierra Nevada Mountains in about 12 feet of snow. Wow. And I'm sure you were well prepared for the snow. Uh, well... People would say, but that's crazy, and uh, the response is, actually, no, it's not, because the mental side of survival training is the same no matter what the weather conditions are, Um, and then we supplemented our survival training there with uh, four days in the Philippine jungle, and that, of course, was the um, Vietnam preparatory equivalent. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) Jeez. So... Uh, you you went from cold to hot, huh? Very much so. Uh, I have um, numerous uh, friends, uh, fellow members of the Atlanta Vietnam Veterans uh, Association who talk about uh, leaving the United States, primarily arriving in uh, Tonsonet Airport uh, when they opened the door of the plane, being hit by the blast of uh, warmth and humidity. And never really being prepared for it. You know, I've heard the same story from many, many folks. They fly in, they open the door, and it's like, oh, my goodness. Um, but that's uh, that's the way it was. And um, so we, we've gotten all the ships over, both ships, uh, by freighter. Did, they, did you do a return trip? You mean return to the Philippines? No, no. Uh, re- well, from the Philippines and then from the Philippines back to the states. No, actually, uh, the the, um, the 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 boats never came back to the United States. From um, from my knowledge, of course, I was there very early on, in 1966, and uh, Vietnam went on until uh, the war went on until 1975. Uh, but I don't believe that any of the boats came back to the United States. Yeah, and they didn't cost anything. Give them away. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> I think that's the way our government looks at everything. There's no cost to it. The taxpayers never felt that hardly, so we'll just leave it behind and hope for the best. Uh, so did... Let me... I, and again, I don't know anything about the Coast Guard, so... When you were about to leave and leave your command of, of uh, your 82-footer, did you have a change of command? 
ceremony? Well, yes, we we did have a change of command, but it wasn't uh, the uh, ruffles and flourishes, if you will, of a peacetime change of command. Uh, basically, um, well, as a as a side note, one of uh, my good friends and classmates was uh, I, I oper- op- operated in the Mekong River Delta area. Um, one of my good friends and classmates was killed. Uh, his name is David Brostrom. Uh, on because of friendly fire up near Da Nang, and his his boat was badly shot up. So um, I was asked, sent uh, to Da Nang, transferred there, and uh, was responsible for putting his uh, boat back together in in fighting shape, if you will, and training a new crew. And then um, you leave Vietnam by various means, in my case, once I had completed uh, the assignment, I was told uh, you can return home and uh, catch the first plane out. And I literally returned to the United States on a C-141 medevac (laughs) um, airplane. Okay. Uh, As your duty in Vietnam and and, uh, in, in some ways performing the same duty that you do in the States, and that's patrol. Did you all also act as FOs in some cases, forward observers? And and did you call in airstrikes? Uh, we did. Uh, there, there were multiple occasions where we intercepted uh, trawlers and trawler you, you can't just stop them um, as long as they're in international waters, which is basically 12 miles offshore. Um, but when they were challenged and they ran for the beach some number of times, uh, um, most of the time they were intercepted before they got to the beach and they wound up running aground. And when they run aground, um, they've got a huge, they're close to the beach where the Viet Cong are waiting to receive the uh, arms and ammunition, so there's very, very fi- heavy firepower on the beach, and we had to call in air support to uh, suppress that so that we could either capture and tow the North Vietnamese trawlers off uh, to the beach or be able to uh, recover the arms and ammunition that was aboard them uh, and or blow them up. And, and I can tell you that uh, I... I did not personally call in the airstrike, but uh, the commanding officer on scene uh, in, in one of those incidents did, and uh, a series of, uh, I think it was four F-4 Phantoms came in, and I will always remember what that was like because you don't hear them until they're already passed, but one moment uh, you're looking at the beach and the next moment it, it basically is obliterated. And uh, that that firepower is unbelievably awesome. So, yes, we did to get involved in air support. The other thing that we did was, uh, like my boat alone, we were involved in uh, seven gunfire support missions where either um, bad guys, if you will, the Viet Cong were discovered somewhere near the beach where we could reach them with our um mortars or machine guns uh, and or uh, where friendly forces 
were pinned down by a VC close to a beach or close to a waterway, and we were called in to support them. Now, would, when you'd call in for air, was that Air Force or Navy? Uh, that was Air Force. Okay. We're going to take another break before we end the show in a little while, so stay tuned, folks. We'll be right back after this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Hello. My name is Colonel Retired Rick White, a United States Army veteran, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I would like to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. If you are a Georgia veteran, and the Georgia veteran's definition is you were either born in this state or you lived in the state 10 years or you raised your right hand and joined the military in the state of Georgia, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to your website at www.gmvhof.org or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. Nominations need to be in by the last Friday in August each year. Again, if you're a Georgia veteran or you're a friend or family member of a Georgia veteran, living or deceased, please consider nominating that veteran to this highly noble and rare Hall of Fame for our great state. Thank you so much. I want to remind everybody one more time on Saturday, July the 17th at 10 a.m. in Newtown Park, which is in Johns Creek, Georgia, uh, will be the in the Veterans Memorial Walk in uh, Johns Creek. There will be the dedication of the Afghanistan Monument. And, uh, you know, for those of you that have loved ones that have served either in Desert Chill or in Desert Storm or just served and are you're a veteran, this is going to be a very, very nice dedication ceremony. And it starts at 10 o'clock, July the 17th, this coming Saturday in Newtown Park, which is in Johns Creek, Georgia, not hard to get to, and the public is invited, and we look forward to seeing you there. So with that being said, we're going to do an ID right quick and be back with Art. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the air on America's Web Radio, and we've got Art Katz on. Art I'm sorry, I, your retirement rank? Uh, I, my retirement rank was a full lieutenant, which is equivalent to a, a captain in the Army. Basically, uh, I got out of the academy. I had uh, four years of uh, give back or obligatory service at the end of those four years. I chose not to stay in the Coast Guard uh, and became a civilian and went into the Coast Guard Reserves. Okay, and so when do you come out a, a second lieutenant like in other branches when you got out of the academy? That's correct. Uh, the Navy and the Coast Guard, they call them ensigns. Uh, the Army and the Air Force, um, you are a second lieutenant in Marines as well. And then you go from there to uh, 
Lieutenant J.G.? That's correct. So it would be Ensign Lieutenant J.G., full lieutenant, which is um, typically takes four to five years. Uh, coming back from Vietnam, uh, the promotion came early, so after about three and a half years, I was a full lieutenant. Were you, re- were you expecting the reception that you got when you came back from Vietnam? No, absolutely not. Now, people in this day and age, of course, it's, it's not uh, that easy to understand what communications were like, but I was married before I went to Vietnam. In fact, uh, when I returned home, uh, I returned home to um, a four-month-old daughter. Um, but in the time that I was away, which was uh, close to a year, I think I spoke to my wife twice. Oh, and wow. that was by radio communications being bounced off the ionosphere. And um, in this day of uh, cell phones and instant communications, you didn't have that then. The primary communication was uh, by letter or by mail. So in 1966, there wasn't that much anti-war, anti-Vietnam War protestation going on in the United States. And I would say I returned to a, not a hero's welcome by any stretch of the imagination uh, and not even any kind of formal welcome. I just came back and continued in the military and then left and went into civilian life. Is the... Uh is the Coast Guard uniform, dress uniform, similar to the naval uniform? Or, you know, I just, I'm sorry that no, I'm so ignorant. That's a fair question. And I would tell you that because of my Coast Guard Academy training, I would respond by saying that the Navy dress uniform is similar to the Coast Guard dress uniform. <laughs> okay. You can say that. And we and didn't so even, did. we, we didn't <laughs> even censor that remark. So, no, that. That's interesting. I, I just, you know, I, I, I don't want to say feel sorry. That's not the right term either. But, you know, it's just, uh, you know, you get all the rights and privileges of any of the other military establishments, Army, Navy, whatever it is. But uh, for some reason, and people don't realize, and, and I want to salute both sides of this coin, the Navy right now and their submarines and our U.S. Coast Guard are working overtime to protect particularly our West Coast, but all of our coasts. And I guess I guess the Coast Guard goes into the Gulf Coast, too, doesn't it? Oh, very much so. As a matter of fact, um, what most people are probably not aware of is over time the Coast Guard was originally part of the Department of Treasury, and that actually goes back to uh, its founding as the Revenue Cutter Service in 1790 uh, <clears throat> under the direction of Alexander Hamilton, and that uh, was had to a, do say, with he the was the Secretary of, of Treasury on imports, and it was the only seagoing service representing um, the United States of America because. After the Revolutionary War, the United States Navy was disbanded. So the Coast Guard's history, the predecessor to the Coast Guard, uh, was started in 1790, and then through a series of um, lefts and rights, etc., uh, it, it 
became the Coast Guard formally in 1915, still under the Department of the Treasury, goes under the, the Department of the Navy in times of war, uh, and currently is under the Department of Homeland Security. So um, the Coast Guard budget doesn't even come from the Department of Defense. It comes through the uh, Department of Homeland Security. Huh. And one of the biggest roles that the Coast Guard has in guarding the coast, if you will, is uh, smuggling, particularly drug smuggling and interdiction. And it's uh, very, very active, obviously, on the Gulf Coast. Uh, refugees coming from Cuba, um, search and rescue, port security, aids to navigation, uh, merchant marine safety. Uh, it's a very, very, very busy, very diverse service. You all, you all get the mayday calls, right? Absolutely do. And uh... Uh, and then there are things that most people don't even know about, um, something, for instance, called AMVER, which is the... Uh, uh, Allied Merchant uh, Vessel Emergency Response. The Coast Guard keeps track of every ship that is sailing the ocean, let's say all NATO ships, etc., etc., so that if there's ever a maritime emergency, um, we immediately know where the nearest friendly, if you will, vessel is and can redirect that vessel to the point of the emergency because the seven seas are huge and uh, um, people get in trouble in various, various places, and here's this amazing resource in terms of every ship that sails the seas. So by having this um, coordinated locator system, you can immediately say to XYZ ship out there, um, there's another ship in trouble, etc., etc. Please get there and, and rescue whoever you can or stand by to aid as may be necessary. Wow. That, that's incredible, and I guess, I guess our technology is just second to none, right? And I, how active, you know, there was a. It hadn't been that many years ago. I can't, I can't say offhand, but you know, within the past ten years, wasn't there piracy that was beginning to start up again, and you all helped squelch that? Uh, <clears throat> there was, and in fact, uh, on a a small scale, there will probably always be some form of piracy somewhere. Um, so, yes, uh, Coast Guard does get involved in that as well. Wow. You all are multitask. And uh, let me ask, uh, while you were in, I don't know how much of the technology changed, but it's like going from <laughs> looking at the stars to going to GPS uh, the technology must be mind-boggling from the standpoint of how much it's changed in the past even 50 years. No, absolutely. And certainly uh, the Coast Guard has <clears throat> kept up with it to the uh, best of its ability. Uh, given funding uh, challenges, governmental funding challenges, etc., would you say that uh, one of the biggest changes, just like you were talking about the location of a, a ship in trouble, but would you say one of the biggest changes is our use of satellites and then also GPS? Oh, without, without question. Uh, GPS is uh, one of the most ex extraordinary um, assistance to uh, the maritime 
community in general, because if you think about it, when you're out on the ocean, there are no landmarks. Uh, <laughs> and the only way that you have of having any sense of where you are that's not electronic is by the ancient methods of where the sun rises and sets and where the stars are. Uh, and in fact, that means that it better not be cloudy. So the use of GPS has enhanced the ability for maritime operations to know where you are at any point in time um, to, the, to an extent that never existed prior to GPS. Where are we going tomorrow? Space. And how will that affect uh, the Coast Guard? You know, I, I I would say I've been away too long to really know the very, very latest uh, technologically, but I, I through uh, my alumni association and keeping up with what's going on uh, at the Coast Guard Academy, um, the, the updating, if you will, and the changes and keeping up to speed with the 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 Im immense uh, evolution of technology is uh, a whole segment of the uh, academy and the Coast Guard and all military services, um, never-ending uh, update, update, update. You know, I've, like I said, I, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box by any means, and I've often wondered, in new technology, how does the dreamer come up with this stuff? You know, uh, absolutely do, and of course, um, think tanks and um, uh, incubators are uh, buzzwords for uh, technological updates and improvements, and uh, it seems like that that's never ending. It, it's it's absolutely amazing, and I guess. Well, obviously, a part of it is if there's a need, there's a response. But at the same token, a lot of times people will come up with things that are not really fill. You didn't even know there was a need until they came up with something to to fill the need. Absolutely, for sure. And uh, I'm sure that's. Uh, do you think uh, they'll go to? Uh, well, let me ask. What were you? What was your power source? On your on your ship, you mean on the on the boat? Yeah, um, we had uh, diesel generators. Okay, so, but it was your your power your powerhouse was uh, diesel. Uh, yeah, the um, we had uh, twin uh, Cummins diesel engines uh, <clears throat> that would let us cruise over a thousand miles uh, without refueling at about uh, 12 miles an hour, and then we had twin gas turbines, which we could use when we needed to get somewhere in a hurry, and that would uh, take us from about uh, 12 knots to uh, 22 or 23 knots. Art, I'm going to have to I've run out of time totally. I want to thank Art Katz for coming on, and one last question. Will you come back? I'd be honored, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.